Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And a while back we talked about the evolution of same-sex marriage in the U.S. So far, 17 states as of the recording of this podcast have legalized same-sex marriage. But we want to continue highlighting this progress and celebrating it by talking this time around about gay weddings. Yeah, because gay weddings in and of themselves, the fact that they even exist is a huge milestone. It's a huge deal. But also, I mean, it's just it's wedding season. You guys, it's June. That's when people get married. It's spring. Things are blooming. Love is in the air. Love of all kinds. Love of all kinds. So let's first do a quick rundown on the evolution of same-sex marriage, legally speaking, in the U.S. and around the world. This really started, the dominoes really began to fall in December 2010 when the U.S. Congress repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell after a Pentagon report concluded that, surprise, surprise, gay service members hold no threat to the armed forces' abilities or effectiveness. Right. And on the heels of that, well, I don't know if you can say it's on the heels of, considering it was three years later, but in June 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, and they ruled in Windsor versus the United States that Section 3 of DOMA, which, refresher, was the 1996 law that denied legally married same-sex couples the protections and responsibilities of marriage, was unconstitutional. In the same breath, essentially, the Supreme Court also stuck a stick of dynamite in Proposition 8, basically restoring the rights of gay people in California to marry. And so that sort of opened the floodgates. People started looking around at each other going like, oh, well, we should probably, you know, give people civil rights. So as Kristen said, 17 states, as of this recording, have legalized gay marriage, led by Massachusetts in 2004. But if we look uh, worldwide... The Netherlands was at the forefront back in 2001, and 16 countries now allow same-sex couples to marry nationwide, while two others, including the U.S. and Mexico, have just regional provisions allowing it. And so while in the United States, clearly there's still a lot of progress to be made because this is now a state-by-state battle, but it does seem that the chips are falling at an accelerated pace, and I suspect that gay marriage is going to be the law of the land in five years. Call me an idealist, but I honestly believe that this is a change that is legitimately sweeping the nation. Right. Well, I mean, if you just think about people in our generation and and younger, especially, I mean, really nobody thinks that gay marriage is a, a huge deal that will harm the marriages of other people. I mean, statistically speaking, our generation and younger is like, let and live and let live. Let people get married. And you know what comes with getting married, Kristen? Weddings. Planning a wedding. I personally would find planning a wedding overwhelming, but I have always had the right built in to have a wedding. Yeah. And to, you know, almost have the the privilege of being annoyed with the idea of like, oh, a wedding. Am I going to have to do that one day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is a uh, this is new territory, though, for same sex couples who are getting married. And this episode is a bit of an intersection between other topics that we've talked about before surrounding weddings, marriage, 
uh, same-sex civil rights, things like that. And so there will be some repeat information, but it's just been interesting to see how gay weddings are being treated and publicized as both something old and something new. <laughs> right. And in a stroke of incredible timing, The Knot, which is actually part of what Slate writer Catherine Goldstein in June 2013 called the wedding industrial complex, they started us off with a really kind of thorough, very long Q&A type of thing that was basically a how-to edition for gay and lesbian couples. It was essentially the guts. The guts were the same of each issue, but there was one geared towards gay grooms and one geared towards lesbian brides. And um, there were 35 Q&As in there, like everything from, you know, should I give an engagement ring to who should we invite? And Catherine Goldstein was talking about how, like, yes, there were some really, like, critical, good hard-hitting questions and answers in there, but really, this is just part of the same old junk that, like, straight couples have had to deal with forever. Right. I remember when this happened, uh, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Throwing Shade, and the gay host, Brian Safi, just ripped into this not-his-and-hers gay wedding special, basically because he, he found it insulting that it was, you know, these questions about how do we have a wedding if we are two men instead of a man and a woman? And I think that the Knots intentions were pretty pure aside from, you know, the capitalistic things of, oh, well, if you're looking for uh, his, his and his cake toppers, well, you can go to one of our sponsors. But uh, but there were some legitimate questions in that Q&A in terms mm-hmm. of, OK, well, do we invite family members who have not been accepting of our union? Things like that. But then also, apparently, lots of suggestions of drag queen entertainment, to which Brian Safi again raised his eyebrow. Well, also, the the first dance Song suggestions were questionable. Lots of Whitney Houston, right? Yeah. Side note, I love Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. But first dance, I don't know. But anyway. So now, I mean, I think it's great that we do have a ton of how-to guides, etiquette, advice. There's even uh, this this group called the Gay Wedding Institute that's been around for several years to sort of advise both actual same-sex couples, but also to sort of advise the media and vendors themselves on how to handle same-sex weddings and civil unions and that kind of stuff. And, you know, say what you will about the advice being sappy, crap or whatever, but like the fact that it's out there, I think is so wonderful. The fact that people are getting the same kind of treatment as far as like, hey, you want advice on having an awesome wedding? Well, here, here's some advice. Here's a way to spend a lot of money well, in yeah. one, in one day. Um, but there, but there are some, the thing that jumps out over and over again in media coverage of gay weddings is this idea that, well, they are basically taking this age old institution and reinvigorating it with their own traditions, because unlike you and I, two cisgender heterosexual women who will be faced with questions of, well, are we that cool with the guy proposing? Do we really want a diamond? Are we going to take his name? All of those questions that come up over and over again, whereas 
when you have two women or two men, it's more of a blank slate Mm -hmm. issue. And so there was a 2013 survey conducted by The Knot and The Advocate, and they polled LGBT and straight Americans to compare and contrast how we do our weddings. And there were some differences that popped out, starting with popping the question. Yeah. So they asked about, you know, whether your proposal was traditional along the lines of, you know, getting down on one knee, pulling out the ring in the little velveteen box. And same sex couples reported that they were less likely to have had a formal proposal, 58 percent compared with 91 percent of opposite sex couples who had a traditional one. And when it comes to, you know, the asking for his or her hand in marriage, you know, we think of that as a very common thing that a groom to be would do asking his future wife's father for permission to marry her. Only 19% of same-sex couples said that they approached the parents of their spouse-to-be, whereas 67% of straight couples said that they did that. Now, when it comes to actually planning the wedding, the survey also found that 55% of same-sex couples evenly split the planning duties compared to just 19% of straight couples, to which I say, hey, who's not pulling their weight around here, straight couples. What's going on? Well, I would imagine in both gay and straight couples all over the place, there are plenty of people who are in couples being like, you get out of here. Yeah. I'm taking this over. Someone probably does end up being more of the event manager. Yeah. And let me just tell you, Caroline, that if that day ever comes for me, oh, I hope it's him. <laughs> I do not want it to be me. Well, but I guess it depends. And I mean, not to get off on a tangent, but, you know, gay or straight, if you're just planning on having a big party, I'd much rather ha- just have like a huge party rather than plan some big formal affair. But then I guess regardless, you've got to worry about the venue. But anyway. But anyway, let's just plan our own perfect wedding, Caroline. And when it comes to footing the bill, 86% of gay couples reported paying for their own weddings versus 40% of opposite sex couples. And that might be why, on average... Gay weddings usually cost quite a bit less. The average cost of a straight wedding in the United States right now is $27,021. What that $21 buys you (laughs) is probably a lot of headache medicine to get through the fact that you're spending $27,000. However, and this was, I think this is New York specific, but in New York at least, same-sex couples spend an average $9,039 on their weddings. So it could be partially due to the fact that, hey, if they are responsible for paying for this whole shindig, Mm -hmm. then maybe they're minding their money a little bit differently. Yeah, instead of if it's a parent or somebody else footing the bill. Right. Yeah. Well, um, as far as, you know, whether it's a big fancy affair or not, 40% of same-sex couples uh, versus 16% of straight couples reported that their nuptials were cash- just casual get together. And along those same lines, though, I mean, you, you mentioned whether or not parents are footing the bill for the wedding, whether or not someone is asking parents permission to pop the question. Gay couples are also less likely to be escorted down the aisle by a family member or incorporate religious vows. Mm-hmm. So it really does seem like in a lot of different ways they are making this tradition their own. They're not saying, well, we have to do things like all these brilliant straight people have been doing it for forever. Right. Yeah, they are. I mean, following their own path, creating their own path and not feeling that pressure that so many straight couples, I assume, 
uh, feel to create a wedding that just like their sister had or just like their yeah. mother had. Yeah, I think there is a lot. There's so much baggage that goes on with the appropriate in quotes in the same way that I had brilliant straight people in quotes uh, planning of a wedding um, up to this issue of changing one's last name. Right. 62% of same-sex couples polled said that they kept their distinct last names versus 76% of straight brides who took their husbands. And honestly, I would have thought the, the the percentage for straight couples would have been higher, that more women would have been taking their husband's name. But Yeah, I mean, I think that more women are keeping their name these days. But yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that it's not even a little bit higher, too. And according to a New York Times article about this, apparently the whole name change thing is more common among lesbians. But not surprisingly, this doesn't have to do with old school ideas about chivalry in a, in a woman's rightful place, subservient to her husband, but rather in the words of one lesbian bride of, quote, being able to change their name is a way of having their home state recognize their marriage. Yeah. Um, so backing up just a minute to what Kristen was talking about, about like the old tradition of chivalry, something that I read and had to read like three times because I, I couldn't believe. I mean, I can believe it. But anyway, I'll just say it. OK, so, you know, changing your name is an ancient tradition. It dates back to the common law doctrine of coverture when a bride assumed her husband's name and legal identity and in what is called civil death ceased to exist as a separate legal person, which I'm just like, ceased to civil death. What? And so the fact that in same-sex weddings, you don't have that same gender norm, traditional gender role baggage, those those dividing lines, I think that really opens people up to being able to make a more informed, egalitarian, educated choice. Like, no, we're going to change our names to this because of this. For instance, in one of these stories, I can't remember if it was in the New York Times or the Atlantic, that was talking to a lesbian couple. One half of the couple was a very tall woman and she wanted to get rid of her name, her last name, which was like kind of German sounding or something. And her wife to be, her last name was Teeny. Yeah. She said that there was no way that she was going to take on the last name Teeny and simply set herself up for the lifetime of jokes after that. But I have a feeling too, that the, that sort of name changing decision is also going to be more influenced by whether or not there are kids involved and it's probably not as big of a deal if both parties don't elect to change their names at all. Right. Or hyphenate or whatever. Yeah. Because they're not really bound. Like we said, they're not really bound by the same etiquette pressure that a lot of straight couples find themselves under. And it is that whole realm of etiquette, though, which some people argue is what is making the introduction of the idea of gay marriage to a lot of straight people more, almost more palatable to people who otherwise wouldn't have agreed with it. Uh, Stephen Petro answers questions about LGBT etiquette and wedding etiquette for the New York Times. And he addressed this whole topic of gay weddings in a June 2013 column by way of answering a question about a gift registry. And Basically, this couple was like, oh, you know, we're having a second wedding. You know, is it tacky to register for gifts and ask our friends to get us stuff? 
So that's like the surface question. That's a good etiquette question. Yeah. But the reality, when you dive under what that question was, the whole reason these people were having a second wedding is because when they had originally married in 2004, their wedding in California had been annulled. Their marriage had been annulled by the state. And so it's not like they're just having a second wedding for kicks. They're getting married in a like a, a second real actual wedding to, to be spouses. And so... Um, Petra was basically using that etiquette question to talk about how what like a watershed moment we find ourselves in that the people who are normally like so outside the bounds of typical etiquette and and whatever are asking these questions and they tend to have almost like a deeper meaning. Yeah, I had never really thought of etiquette in this more significant kind of way, because typically if I think of etiquette, it sounds very stodgy to me. It's mm-hmm. going to be more of the blue-haired grandma in the corner who might not want anything to do with this crazy new thing called gay weddings. But Petra makes a great point about how the rise of etiquette, th- there have been these peaks in etiquette throughout the 20th century, now the 21st century, related, correlated to giant social changes happening. So he writes, for instance, that it was no coincidence that the first edition of Emily Post's Etiquette, which came out in 1922, was published soon after the bloodshed and social upheaval of World War One. Yeah, and while we're not saying that the bloodshed of World War One has anything to do with gay weddings, what we are trying to say and what Petro is, is stressing is that it's almost like etiquette rules, you're able to introduce something new and different through traditional channels, essentially. You're you're calming people down about some social upheaval, some social change. I mean, it's happening relatively quickly, I would say, and I'm sure there are a lot of social anxieties out there. But when you're just talking about two men or two women trying to figure out a gift registry, like that's universal. (laughs) You know, that's a universal wedding question. Well, and that's the whole that's the whole thing that comes up also, in these media reports on or trend stories, and I hate that they're even trend stories because it's here to stay on gay marriage, is the fact that it is treated a lot as a novelty, which is a little unfortunate because at the end of the day, this is a question about two people getting married. And the mm-hmm. less we can put them in the category of other, mm-hmm. of like, oh, well, you need your own set of rules because you're the special case over here. I think we'll see maybe some of that eroding as we progress into this just being a normal part of our society. I think we will. I think we totally will. I think we're at a stage right now where a lot of people have to say gay wedding or straight wedding or gay wedding etiquette or whatever. But I I do think we are getting closer to a time where it's just like wedding etiquette. Right. Don't invite family members who don't support you. Right. Regardless of who you're marrying. Exactly. And we're seeing that evidence of that. In the publication of wedding announcements in newspapers uh, in 2008, GLAAD looked at how many papers across the country have policies that, that publish same-sex wedding announcements. And I think we're starting to see evidence of that in wedding announcements in newspapers. So in 2002, the New York Times began opening up its wedding pages to LGBT couples and in 2008, GLAAD looked at how that had had a ripple effect to other newspapers around the country and found that, and I'm sure the number has gone up since then, it found that 72% of daily newspapers in the U.S. accept wedding or commitment ceremony announcements for same-sex couples. Yeah, and, um, I mean, as they should, but you can imagine, I mean, 
I'm someone who worked at a daily newspaper in not the most progressive town. So, you know, I can only I can only imagine some of the newsroom discussions or whatever. But despite the progress that a lot of daily newspapers have shown, there have been several articles in the past couple of years highlighting the newspapers that are refusing to publish them. For instance, um, back in fall 2013, uh, the Texarkana Gazette in Texas refused to publish the announcement from Michelle Cooks and Patricia Reitner because they cited this policy that the appending nuptials have to be recognized in the state in which the paper circulates. It sounded like a whole, like, overproduced excuse just to not run it. Exactly. Making up a rule in mm-hmm. order to be able to say no. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's not the only example of discrimination that same-sex couples might be facing in the process of planning a wedding. And we're going to highlight some of those instances when we come right back from a quick break. So when we left off, we had mentioned that, hooray, so many newspapers around the country are now publishing same-sex wedding announcements, and that's fantastic for issues of visibility, etc. But there are still bigoted pockets of the United States that aren't so keen on assisting with gay weddings. Yeah, one that really uh, stuck out to me. Uh, in the news was the whole cake thing. Remember the whole cake thing? The whole cake thing? That whole cake thing. In December 2013, a judge ordered Colorado baker Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Denver to stop discriminating against gay couples or face fines. The judge said that he violated the law when he turned a couple away in 2012 simply for being gay and wanting to be married. And the judge in that case cited state law that prohibits businesses from refusing service based on race, sex, marital status, or sexual orientation. Writing, At first blush, it may seem reasonable that a private business should be able to refuse service to anyone it chooses. This view, however, fails to take into account the cost to society and the hurt caused to persons who are denied service simply because of who they are. Now, of course, this angered some particularly religious conservatives because... Jack Phillips, the baker, said that it was due to his Christian beliefs that he would bake any other kind of cake. He said that he would even bake a wedding cake for a dog wedding, but he simply would not bake a cake for a gay marriage. If it had just been um, a gay birthday party, still fine. But because of his beliefs about the sanctity, the Christian sanctity of marriage, it wasn't okay. And so there were some you know, conservative politicians who came out saying, This is an overreach of, you know, judicial power tamping down on our religious freedoms and the tangential debates from there that emerged, one of which we read over at The Atlantic, was really interesting because at one point, gay commentator Andrew Sullivan weighed in saying, you know what, if somebody doesn't want to bake me a cake for my gay wedding, that's totally fine. It seems like at this point... The number of people who are are so staunchly against this are are so small and and becoming so clearly um, out of touch with their views and outnumbered and outnumbered that it's almost like it's not worth the effort. But at the same time, still, I'm sure gay couples who are planning weddings say, you know, what? actually it is completely worth the effort because we should be able to and be granted the rights to plan a wedding with the same kind of freedom that everybody else does. Yeah, everybody likes cake. 
Everybody likes cake. Everybody likes cake, everybody. Okay. And you know what? Everybody likes to have photographers at their wedding too, but we have, we've had some problems with photographers. Um, Elaine Photography Studio co-owner Elaine Huguenin refused to photograph a same-sex couple saying that it would violate her religious beliefs, similar to the, the cake baker and claiming that she's protected under the First Amendment. But in April 2014, the Supreme Court rejected an appeal from her studio letting the New Mexico High Court ruling stand that she uh, was discriminating. And then we also have similar things happening with florists. In March 2013, Baronel Stutzman, a flower shop owner, refused to supply flowers for a couple in Washington State. And Stutzman is being sued by the couple and the state attorney general's office for violating the consumer protection law, similar to the the cake incident where basically there are laws saying, hey, guess what? Uh, it's great that you own a business. Can't really discriminate based on uh, someone's race, sexual orientation, ability, etc. And it's good that those laws are in place mm-hmm. because those laws were probably initially enacted to prevent racial discrimination Let's continue forging forward in our quest for civil rights for everyone, shall we? Absolutely. And along those same lines, we have this trend again. I don't like to use the word trend, but you do have this kind of trend popping up of a lot of straight couples saying either I'm not going to get married until my gay friends can get married or they're trying to incorporate something into their actual same-sex wedding ceremony to indicate to all of their guests that they support same-sex marriage and want you to support it, too. And I am curious, though, on this particular issue to know what LGBT listeners think about this thing of straight allies Mm -hmm. sort of doing our own, like, standing with you, refusing to get married, or maybe we're just going to go ahead and get married, but we're going to acknowledge the fact that not everybody can get married like is it does it feel disingenuous at all yeah that's something that i'm wondering too because i knew a couple who dated for years and i mean they're super in love and they absolutely said like we are not there's no way we are getting married until everyone can get married and then of course a couple years ago they got married and so i'm just wondering like does that just make it seem like god you guys just shut up and you know like I, I am curious too. What our is that? Yeah, is that the appropriate way to acknowledge our heteronormative privilege? You know, to put it in really stodgy sounding terms. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's a, it's probably coming from a, a good place. Yeah, yeah. I yes, I, I believe it is too. I don't like believe it's an attention getting thing. But yeah, you have to wonder about it. One one example that I do like um, is from Anne Hathaway's wedding to Adam Shulman, her boyfriend. Anne Hathaway, the actress, in case, I don't know, you're under a rock. But she authorized the sale of her wedding pictures to benefit Freedom to Marry, which is an advocate group, as well as three other charities. And a couple years ago, Freedom to Marry created its own marital registry. And since then, the majority of donations they've received have come from heterosexual weddings. Yeah, and and other straight couples have incorporated things like reading from court decisions on same-sex marriage in their ceremony. Or others might hand out lapel pins with the White Knot logo, which is produced by an LGBT advocacy organization, whitenot.org. While others might ask us to sign petitions or open letters in support of gay marriage. So basically, but but isn't that again a little bit of let's have our cake and eat it too at our wedding? Literally. A little bit. I don't know. Mm. I don't know how I feel about it entirely because obviously 
I, I don't not support it. But at the same time, I think is, is this the best way to push, push this forward? I don't know. I don't know either. I, I mean, don't know. maybe if it gets your, some of your more conservative family members at least thinking about it. That's a good point. I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. LGBT listeners, please advise. Because then there's also the whole thing of celebrity couples such as Brad and Angelina. Right. Saying they're not going to get married at all. Yeah. Charlize Theron has said the same thing. Lena Dunham has said that she and that guy with the big glasses who makes those <laughs> pop songs won't get married until everyone can get married. Yeah. Lena Dunham is just the the most recent in a string of people. Although, you know, like it's the same thing. Does it come off as disingenuous because Brad Pitt has also come out and said that, you know, it's up to our kids. If our kids really want us to get married and it's important to them, then we will. Again, I think all of this just underscores the fact that it's incredible that we have the choice to do that. And some people, a lot of people don't have the choice, you know, that yeah. just uh, that just highlights how there's still such a disparity. Yeah. And so on the one hand, anything that can bring attention to that disparity is positive. However, you know, I feel like there's some crotchety old people out there looking at Lena Dunham and Angelina and shaking their fist and being like, you dumb kids. You just have to wonder, like, is it effective? Is it genuine? Is it doing what they want it to do? But it's not bad that they're doing it. Exactly. Yeah, definitely not bad that they're doing it. Um, now, finally, we got to talk about uh, let's get down to brass tacks when it comes to weddings. If you want to really have an argument about, you know, kind of stripped of politics. Mm -hmm. You just talk about money. Let's just talk about the economics of gay marriage. Because you know what? Last time I checked, the U.S. has this massive deficit. Okay. We could use some extra cash in the coffers. And one way to do that is to legalize gay marriage. Yeah, trust me. Kristen checks the deficit every day. So last time she checked means like two minutes ago. I am fun at parties. On her phone. Yeah, but no, it turns out, you guys, lo and behold, granting people their civil rights can have an impact on the economy. Um, So if we look pre-DOMA, if we go back before the Defensive Marriage Act was destroyed... Back in 2009, the New York Times reported that same-sex couples stood to lose as much as 500 grand over a lifetime because they couldn't marry and therefore get benefits like spousal health insurance and other stuff. And that led to more same-sex couples being more likely to be uninsured. And then that can snowball into people who are uninsured avoiding preventive care and winding up costing everybody when they go to the emergency room. It's a whole mess when people can't get spousal benefits. So economist Lee Badgett, writing for PBS in March 2013, was citing her research and that from the Congressional Budget Office. And she was saying that state and federal budgets will actually get a positive boost if gay couples are allowed to marry. She talks about any additional state and federal spending on benefits. So once you're a spouse and you can receive spousal benefits would be outweighed by savings from lower cash assistance and Medicaid spending. Badgett's talking about all of these good give and take economic aspects of allowing gay people to marry. She also talks about, now remember this is pre-DOMA, she's also talking about how there'd probably be an increase in tax revenue. She talks about how all of a sudden you've got this basically like pent up wedding-ready population who's been unable to marry this whole time and suddenly you're going to have like the floodgates open and thousands of excited couples can start finally planning a quote-unquote real wedding 
And she said that that would generate at least $1.5 billion by her calculations in spending on things like flowers, cakes, bands, meals, photographers, hotels, tourism, suits, gowns, and not to mention those really expensive, like, bridal or groom party outfits. Can I just mention, though, Caroline, that when you said this pent-up group of people ready to get married, I just envisioned... A bunch of brides and grooms <laughs> leaping out of a crock pot. <laughs> it's just been simmering. I picture there. I picture them at like the start line yeah. of a race. Yeah. Like, let us freaking get married. And then her last point, one of one, one of Badgett's other points was that there are a ton of employers who really, you know, they they don't care. Like, have a wedding, don't have a wedding, I don't care. But there are a lot of employers, big and small out there, who say, We just want to recruit and retain the best people. And if making our employees better means making them happy, and if making them happy means letting them get married, then freaking let them get married. Uh, companies like Google, Apple, Viacom, Nike, all these people are saying, we just want our LGBT employees to actually be able to focus on their jobs and being really super creative and awesome, not dealing with the whole issue of stigma and inequality that creates problems and stress on their families. Yeah, and so if you look at... New York, as an example, where gay marriage was legalized in 2011, the state has seen an economic ripple effect from same-sex marriage. This was reported on by CNN in July 2012, and it found that between things like marriage license fees, local celebrations, and wedding-related purchases, New York City's economy added $259 million to its bottom line. Right. And the city collected $16 million in tax revenue from same-sex marriages during that period. And remember, this is just in a year from when it was legalized in New York in 2011 to the article being written in July 2012. But weddings, not not just like getting your license, not just, you know, having a little local dinner party to celebrate. Weddings brought the biggest economic boost to New York City, with about 67 percent of same-sex couples who got married in the city holding wedding receptions at venues in the city, like hotels, restaurants, all that stuff throughout New York City. But then that also brings up my more cynical side, Caroline, of saying, well, is this only just feeding the wedding industrial complex? I think I'm just terrified of ever being at a point in my life where I'm expected to spend $27,000 on one day. I just don't know if I can do it. No. BYOB, man. So for a more recent example, let's look, though, at Utah, which at the time of us recording this podcast is basically on the legal precipice of same-sex marriage being allowed. And the UCLA-based Williams Institute found that legalizing same-sex marriage could generate, in Utah, $15.5 million in wedding spending and more than $1 million in sales tax revenue for Utah's economy in just the first Three years. And on top of that, it could also generate 268 jobs in the tourism and hospitality sector. Yeah. So, I mean, weddings in general are kind of a shot in the arm for state economies. Just imagine, though, if you have like this big rush of people being like, we could have weddings now. Who's to say that it won't like eventually kind of level off and plateau? But hey, states, if you're if you're looking to make some money and also grant people civil rights. Yeah, I mean, because I'm just saying that the whole economic argument is a good one to keep in your back pocket when you're talking to people who aren't so on board with the idea of same sex marriage, because it's hard to argue with saying, well, you know, this this would generate massive amounts of money. Everybody likes money, right? Everybody likes money. (laughs) 
Um, but so looking to a Gallup poll that was conducted on U.S. spending from January through September of 2013, so sort of straddling pre and post DOMA, um, they found that married Americans spend more than those in any other marital status category across age groups. So there's another argument. When you're married, you spend more money. Americans who have never married spend significantly less, particularly for those people who are under 50, suggesting that if the marriage rate increases across the country, overall spending may increase and benefit our economy. Yet another reason why extending civil rights to all is a good idea. Right, because think about it. If you're pooling two incomes, basically, even if you have separate bank accounts, um, you are more likely to to actually spend on things. Maybe fix up your house, fix up your yard. Go on vacation. Who knows? Who knows? The possibilities really are endless for how you could spend your money. So what do we have to say with all of this, Caroline? Uh, gay weddings happening, old traditions meet new traditions. Yeah, I think um, on the one hand, it must be nice to not have that traditional baggage of like, we have to do weddings this one way. On the other hand, it's unfortunate that that freedom uh, stems from the fact that these folks have n- never been allowed to marry, and so they haven't had traditions in place already. But, um, you know, I, if, if anyone out there wants to invite me to your, uh, to your same sex wedding, <laughs> it sounds like it would be a lot of fun, judging by the statistics we have presented here. Well, you know what? Weddings are usually fun. I like going to weddings personally. I don't want to plan one, but I enjoy going. Uh, if there's an open it, bar. It depends. I've been to some good ones and I've been to some, if he wins. Well, and we're going to talk about that on the next episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You mm-hmm. with our interview with Jen Dahl, who wrote an entire memoir about going to weddings. Because guess what, folks? Whether you knew it or not, it's Weddings Week here on the podcast. But LGBT listeners, we especially want to hear from you on this. Those who have gotten married, have you gone through the whole gay wedding planning and encountered any of the things that we were talking about? Are you tired of being treated as a trend piece in the mm-hmm. wedding section in the New York Times? Do you think that all of this is positive and good and we are accelerating in the right direction? Yeah, I do think, let me reiterate, I do think that it is on the horizon that we are getting to a place where there isn't a gay wedding and a straight wedding. And I mean, like living, like I live in, I live in Midtown Atlanta, for instance, and the fact that you, the fact that anyone would walk into a florist and would not be served because they are gay, uh, just like wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen. That would not happen. Not in, not where I live. And so, but I understand that Atlanta is just a pocket. Yeah. A pocket, a special little blue pocket, um, in the red jeans of Georgia. Yeah. Still, still a lot of progress to be made. So LGBT listeners, we especially want to hear from you on this topic. What has been your experience with weddings? Are you hoping to plan one? One day, once same-sex marriage becomes legal in your state or wherever you live, have you planned one? And if so, what was it like? Please share all the details with us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your emails. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or send us a Facebook message. And we've got a couple of Facebook messages to share with you right now. So I've got an email here from David, subject line, Fat shaming in the gay community. And this is in response to our episode, The Body Shame Epidemic. He writes, I've been a fat man my whole life. 
It hasn't been an easy time, but I'm slowly coming to grips with bad acceptance. By this, I mean instead of focusing on the scale number, I'm trying to live a life that is happy, is being healthy, and being loving. I'm lucky enough to have found a man who married me, hey, speaking of gay weddings, because I was fat, not in spite of it. This leads me to my story. When I was first exploring coming out, I attempted to go to a gay bar in my college town. I say attempted because in the parking lot, a group of rather nice-looking men catcalled over to me. They said, hey, fatty, there isn't anything in there for you. No one will even look at you. It has stayed with me even today. While there are gay groups that welcome heavier men, the gay community, by and large, is a vicious place of fat-shaming. One needs only to surface glance at most gay media to see the over-obsession with twinks, hotness, and the like. While the straight community has this too, it does seem to be a bit more flexible in terms of allowing heavier members to be in and find love, like you mentioned with the sitcom situation. I would like to think that gay culture and the community is changing, but there isn't a ton of evidence in that direction. That being said, I've been with the same wonderful man for 20 years and have been happily married for five, ever since our state made it legal. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to hear from... Other gay listeners about that. Do you have you witnessed or experienced a similar kind of more extreme or more acute, I should say, fat shaming among the LGBT community? Let us know. Okay, I have a letter here from Kirsty about our women and gaming episodes. Uh, she says it reminded me so much of a conversation between a good guy friend of mine and my husband. The guy friend, who definitely qualifies as a hardcore gamer, said that he thinks that so much exposure to video games has distorted his view of women since they are always portrayed as helpless princesses that need to be rescued. Thus, this is the kind of romantic relationship he expects to have. Also, he thinks it has given him unrealistic expectations of what women's bodies should look like since they are always portrayed, well, unrealistically. My husband's response was that it is complete BS to blame attitudes about women exclusively on video games and that there are plenty of video games that have awesome female characters if you actually bother to look for them. He says that Samus is one of his favorite characters because she is, in his words, a total badass. She is super tough and certainly doesn't need any rescuing. For the entire game, her sex is a non-issue and he thought it was really cool when she was revealed to be a woman because it flew in the face of expectations about action heroes. It surprised me that you had only negative things to say about Samus on the podcast as she is so well-beloved and better known for being tough than being sexy. And she says, by the way, that her husband is currently playing uh, Final Fantasy 13. I didn't realize that exists, which has a really awesome female protagonist. And he does. He said it doesn't matter to him. Either way, if the character he is playing is male or female, as long as the game is good. So thank you for writing in, Kirsty. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And to find all the links to our social media, blog posts, videos, and podcasts... There's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom.